Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. It is Sunday, November 26th, and the 2023 Formula One Championship has reached its conclusion. I suppose you could make the technical argument that the championship was decided a half dozen races ago, but the calendar is now complete and the sunset on a eventful 2023 championship from Yas Marina Circuit on Yas Island in Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates. And the season ended so much like we saw throughout the campaign with a dominant Max Verstappen victory. Victory number 19 on the season. He finished with 21 podiums. And of course, his team, Red Bull Racing, absolutely dominated the championship from front to back. And I was having a conversation with friend of the show, Sam Cooper, earlier today. And we were reflecting on the 2023 championship and looking forward to the 2024 championship. And I asked him, you know, are, are the things, are there reasons to be excited about 2024? And I think one of the things that he said that really stuck to me was 2023, in a historical perspective, when we're looking back in five years, 10 years, goodness knows I'll probably still be doing this podcast with Mark Daly from our basements in Coquitlam, British Columbia. But his point being that when we look back on 2023, this will very likely be the pinnacle, the peak of Red Bull dominance. Now, that said, I I have every reason to suspect they'll run away with the championship in 24 and 25, and it'll really take the reset of regulations, the major reset of regulations in 2026 to upset the field. But I think what we saw this year was a level of dominance that would be extraordinarily challenging for any team to replicate. Even Red Bull, who have been... You know, Sergio Perez aside from a reliability perspective and from a build perspective, and especially when you look at the performance and consistency of Max Verstappen, so many ways that Milton Keynes-based organization has been perfect. And I think it would be extraordinarily difficult for any team to replicate the kind of success that they've had this season. Of course, Max Verstappen wins the championship on 570 Five points. That is more than double the P2 finisher, which of course is his teammate Sergio Perez. And you know there was some doubt with three, four, five races left that maybe he was going to finish P2, but he did, and it is in fact the best finish of his career. So shout out to Sergio Perez and all of the Mexican Formula One fans for that well-deserved nod. But of course Max Verstappen was incredibly dominating, and when you look at the constructors' championship, Red Bull absolutely decimated the field. And we've seen years of dominance like this in the past, but of course those championships were much shorter and reliability was far more challenging. This year, Red Bull 860 points, finishing ahead of Mercedes who finished P2, securing that P2 spot, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this season might be something that will be very difficult, like I said, for them to replicate. And in a lot of ways, things really went their way. And I think the biggest thing that you can look at and marvel on is 
just how reliable that RB19 was. And of course, RB19 is a reference to this year's chassis, the car that they brought to every single Grand Prix, but they were remarkably reliable. And I think that's clearly a testament to all of the hard work that goes on at the factory in Milton Keynes, where they assemble that car and where soon they will have a wind tunnel, although probably more adjacent to the factory. But a ton of credit goes to everyone at that facility for putting together a car that is so astoundingly reliable week in and and week out. And of course, I I think we would be remiss if we didn't also acknowledge the contributions of, of Honda. And Honda deserve worlds of credit for being able to provide a top-notch world-beating power unit that is largely indestructible, that these power units are extremely complex and extremely technical. And really, that was probably the last thing that this team ever had to worry about, that they would receive those crated power units from Tokyo on the shipping bay at their factory in Milton Keynes. They would slot them into the back of that RB19, and away they go. And again, the reliability could also be because we're in a period of an engine freeze. So you're not disrupting that engine and and by introducing incremental changes and updates. But all of that to say, Honda was fantastic. The chassis was fantastic. And Max Verstappen in particular was just everything that you could possibly expect and ask your lead driver to be so I kind of leading off the show because I wanted to make sure that we gave that team and and Max Verstappen in particular his flowers and I was cleaning the house earlier as you do on a Sunday getting ready for the week and I was listening to some podcasts and it occurred to me that less than 24 months ago because of course the 2021 championship wasn't decided until almost the middle of December because it ran pretty late that season but less than 24 months ago Max Verstappen hadn't won a Formula One championship and 24 months later, which is a blink of the eye, historically speaking, just a blink of the eye, 24 months later, he is now a three times Formula One world champion. And you really have to consider him now, if we weren't already, really amongst the all-time greats. Because as I as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there's every reason to think that while he may not win in a romp in 24 and 25, that if you were somebody that was willing to put money down, that he's obviously the safe bet for 24 and 25. We're in the middle of an engine freeze. No other team is really going to find some extra horsepower in their existing power unit. And of course, if he can continue this reign of dominance and they can continue to enjoy this reliability, obviously, you know, they're going to be in a really good place. And like I said, historically speaking, to contextualize this, Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, of course, the all-time greats sitting on seven titles. Michael Schumacher won in 94, 95, 2001, 2, 3, and 4. And Lewis Hamilton, of course, wins his maiden title in 08 and then follows it up in 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And then if you want to kind of continue going down that list, you have to go all the way back to the 50s when Juan Manuel Fangio ran off five titles. And then when you get beyond that, it's slightly more modern. Of course, Alain Prost won four titles. Sebastian Vettel more recently won four titles, of course, with that run of dominance at the end of the V8 era, winning in 10, 11, 12, and 13. And then you'll have a number of different drivers that are sitting on three titles. And Max Verstappen now sits amongst some of the all-time greats, including Arton Senna, Nelson Piquet, Nicky Lauda, Jackie Stewart, and Jack Brabham, that he is 
really one of the all-time greats. And like I said, there's every reason to think that he doesn't just win next year, but the following year, and then all of a sudden, he's sitting amongst the top three or four great drivers in the history of the sport. And somebody was just passing me a message here as I'm recording this podcast, and they're saying, don't forget, don't forget, Max Verstappen also becomes the first driver to lead over 1,000 laps in a season. And of course, some of these statistics, 19 wins in a season, well, that's phenomenal. But really, when you talk about the 80s and the 90s, they weren't running 19 Grand Prix in a season. So, you know, there's a bit of an unfair advantage there. But at the same time, that as a Formula One driver, maybe maybe you benefit from better nutrition and better exercise regimens and you fly more comfortably and your accommodations are better. But, you know, if you go back to the 80s and the 90s and even the 2000s, from a driver perspective, driving the car was a different experience. There's no question about it. It was probably significantly less comfortable and probably far more manual than it is today. But today, these drivers are working 12 months of the year. And if they're not in the sim and they're not at the track and they're not on the gym, they are doing media obligation after media obligation after media obligation. And, you know, we talk about, well, Max Verstappen benefits from being able to run 22, 23, 24 Grand Prix. But at the same time, that's also a challenge because he's also competing in 22, 23, 24 Grand Prix. And so is the rest of the grid. But their calendar is that much longer and that much more intense than anything that we've experienced in the past. And it's only getting longer. And of course, we know next year we're looking at a 23-24 race calendar. And the current Concord Agreement makes accommodations for 25. And it's no secret that FOM and Liberty have teased to investors the possibility of stretching to a 30 race championship. So again, all the credit in the world to Max Verstappen. I think some people might suggest, you know what, he he was a lucky driver in some circumstances this year. But in Formula One, sometimes you make your own luck. And he qualified exceptionally well this year. And the benefit of qualifying well is you start at the front of the grid. He's able to punch a hole to the front. He's in clean air. And then he's not getting into those tussles in the middle of the midfield. And that's where his teammate, Sergio Perez, running the exact same machinery. That's where he gets into so much trouble because his weekend derails so early. He qualifies poorly. And then all of a sudden, despite Despite the fact that he has this lethal weapon that is the RB19, he's stuck in the midfield. And when you're stuck in the midfield, there's going to be contact. There's going to be tussles. There's going to be racing incidents. And when you have a car like this, you have to be able to qualify well. And obviously, Max Verstappen did exactly that. And if we reflect back on this championship... Max Verstappen outqualified Sergio Perez 20 to 2 this year. I think he qualified on pole 12 times this year. That is in addition to, of course, the fact that he's qualified on pole 32 times now in his career. He just was a, an absolutely masterful driver this championship. Now, of course, again, like I said, getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I think it's important to put into perspective everything that we've seen this year. We did, of course, have a Grand Prix this weekend in Yas Marina, and of course, I would definitely be a little bit remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about that. I think, obviously, I'm a little bit heartbroken that I couldn't be there. Uh, for me, people talk about the Canadian Grand Prix. It's your home Grand Prix. It's your home Grand Prix. I think for me, Yas Marina is very much my my home Grand Prix. It's a track. It's an area. It's a community that I'm very, very familiar with. And I always get a sense of FOMO. And I, I certainly feel a little bit 
homesick watching this from home, but it's a beautiful circuit and it's at a beautiful setting. The crowd this weekend was fantastic. Ticket sales were very, very strong. They sold out the event earlier than they normally do. The concerts that they had lined up this weekend were absolutely fantastic. And then quickly, if you want to take a look at the qualifying this weekend, like I tease Max Verstappen, one of his 12 podiums this year, one of his 12 polls this year, he qualified P1 followed by Charles Leclerc, incredible performance by Oscar Piastri, George Russell, Lando Norris, Yuki, who was also driver of the day today. So huge shout out to the young Japanese driver, Fernando Alonso, Nico Hulkenberg, Sergio Perez, and Pierre Gasly. And again, Sergio Perez starting his weekend more more challengingly. I don't know that that's a word, but he was he was creating more work for himself by qualifying so poorly. And then, of course, from a race classification perspective, Max Verstappen winning again his 19th race victory of the year, taking 26 points, followed by Charles Leclerc in the Ferrari. George Russell, just his second podium this year, by the way, a, a particularly unremarkable campaign for the young British driver. Sergio Perez misses the podium in P4, followed by Lando Norris, Oscar Piastri, Fernando Alonso, Yuki Tsunoda, Lewis Hamilton, and Lance Stroll. So both of those Aston Martins ultimately finished on the podium, kind of capping a relatively strong finish to this season. Now, from a race perspective, I, I talked about this a little bit last week when I was getting ready for this show, and I said, we already know who's going to probably win this race. It's going to be a dry race, a predictable race. Max Verstappen's been very successful here in the past. This year's compounds are obviously very similar to last year's. There's no reason to think that he's not going to be able to replicate some of his past successes. Now, the thing that I was very curious about, of course, was how the rest of the Constructors' Championship was going to play out, because, of course, there were some things that weren't decided coming into Yas Marina, the weekend. One of those things, of course, was hey, we know Red Bull's running away with this championship, but who's going to finish P2? And it was really obviously coming down to the Brackley Bricksworth based Mercedes team and the Marinello based Ferrari team. And, and I argued on the show last week that this is something that was of an incredible importance, probably less so to the drivers. And I, I think post-race, you could even hear that in Charles Leclerc's voice that, hey, ultimately, you know what? <laughs> Where they finish in the Constructors' Championship is probably a little less relevant to him. I think he's obviously motivated by his personal successes and his ability to compete for Grand Prix victories. But ultimately, it was in fact Mercedes that finished P2 in the championship this year on 409 points to, Mer for, to Ferrari's 406 points. Of course, Ferrari did manage to secure a race win this year. Carlos Sainz, the Spanish driver, managed to take that victory in Singapore. Of course, being the only non-Red Bull driver to win a Grand Prix this year. And of course, I think the Tafosi was or were and probably still are very, very hyped up about that. But Mercedes taking that win away from Ferrari in terms of placement in the Constructors title is relevant for a couple of reasons. I think one, there's huge bragging rights here. And I think for everyone back at Brackley and in Bricksworth in the UK, I think for all of those hundreds and thousands of people that are working on that power unit in that car, this is incredibly important to them. And a lot of them, quite frankly, are incentivized by where the team finishes and year-end bonuses are often formulated by where the team finishes in the Constructors' Championship. So I think emotionally, psychologically, and even financially, a lot of those folks back at the factory were hyper-motivated by where they were going to finish. And likewise, the 
same is true for the Ferrari team, but ultimately Mercedes managed to eke out the P2 finish in the championship. And like I said, Charles Leclerc did everything he could, in fact, in trying to back up the field a little bit with George Russell, but George Russell finishes on the podium. Unfortunately, just his second podium and what was really a disappointing campaign for him. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. But again, I think for Mercedes, this is a big win because they're going to take more prize money. And of course, teams make money in a variety of ways. They make money through sponsorship and partnerships. But a big chunk of their payday comes from money that's split up through their finish and their placement in the Constructors' Championship. And really, when it comes to the FOM handing money over to the teams, that's where the balance of it goes. It goes into the prize fund for the Constructors' title. So it's understood that the difference between third and second is about $10 million U.S. dollars. So maybe for organizations as big as Ferrari and Mercedes, it's not quite so vital. But the downside possibly for Mercedes is as per the new regulations, this new era of Formula One where we're trying to increase competitive parity and balance the playing field a little bit. One of the things that Mercedes actually loses in the process of finishing P2 is that Ferrari, they maybe don't take home as big a payday as their British-based counterpart, but they're going to secure more wind tunnel testing time. So again, Red Bull is ultimately allocated the least amount of wind tunnel time because they finished P1 in the championship, whereas Haas finishing dead last, they ultimately get the most wind tunnel time. And again, the benefit to a team is the more time you can be running that sim, that half-scale car in that wind tunnel, the more data that you get, which allows you to make more educated decisions about the direction of the car from a design and aerodynamic perspective. So that difference isn't necessarily significant, but it's still pretty material. Now, all of that to say Mercedes finishing P2, I think if you were to have an honest conversation with Total Wolf and some of the other leadership there, and particularly Lewis Hamilton, that, you know, they had some bright moments. And, and of course, you know, Lewis managed to secure a couple of P2s and a couple of P3s. But ultimately, I don't think anybody is happy with that car. Obviously, last year was a disaster. And I think the worst part of last year was that they won a race in Brazil. And obviously, Total Wolf talked about the fact that 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 encouraged them to double down on their design trajectory and the current planning and they really largely carried over that 2022 car which was deeply flawed to 23 which immediately put them on the back foot so my expectation for next year is next year's competitor will carry over only those things that they know works and it will be a fundamentally new chassis with an entirely new aerodynamic language so maybe they finish p2 i don't think they're happy with it and of course they still scored half the constructors points that Red Bull did. Now for Ferrari, obviously, you know, unfortunately there's sometimes a built-in bias where being an English language podcast will often speak a lot about the British based teams because the British media speak a lot about the British based teams. And I think sometimes we just aggregate a lot of that information, but Ferrari, I think likewise, probably quite happy and content with the development of their power unit, but probably not particularly particularly content and satisfied with where they are from an aerodynamic perspective. And obviously from a, a, 
work effort perspective, they're going to go back to Marinello in the offseason and really revisit the things that did and didn't work for them this year. That as the season came to a conclusion, it felt more and more as though they had really kind of cracked the code in being able to develop a car that has a significant amount of top-line speed without a lot of drag. But from my perspective, I think one of the things they need to continue to work on is, hey, how can we take that, that attribute, and carry it on into the corners? Because the Red Bull, of course, it does everything well. It has great top-line speed without too much drag. It can run. You can run it high. You can run it low. It doesn't experience a lot of that porpoising effect. But it's also incredibly quick in the corners. It's just such a great multi-tool where I think from a Ferrari perspective, they're starting to slot some things into place. And I don't think that car, even though they finished P3 in the championship, I don't think it's quite as flawed as this year's Mercedes competitor, of course, was. Now, when we continue down the Constructors Championship, we talked last week as well about P4 and P5. And I think from a momentum perspective while it was a long shot there was of course this probability that maybe the Silverstone based Aston Martin or Ramco Mercedes team could eke out a P4 and of course that wasn't to be despite the fact that both of their drivers this weekend finished in the points which is something that wasn't a foregone conclusion for much of the third act of this Formula One championship they had an extremely strong weekend and it just seemed to continue to build on the momentum that they've really enjoyed in the back half of this championship. Of course, like I said a couple of minutes ago, uh, Lando Norris, the young, I gotta stop saying that. He's not that young. He's been in the championship now since 2019, but Lando Norris, the British driver, finished P5. I think he would probably be very happy with that result. Of course, he scored 10 points. And Oscar Piastri, the young Australian rookie, finished a close P6 on 8 points. And while he was six or seven seconds behind in the classification, I don't think the Delta was really that significant. And of course, he had a really strong, fantastic qualifying session as well, qualifying P3. And obviously, he's the rookie of the year. You could probably make a case for Liam Lawson, and you probably should, given the fact that he came into that role at Alpha Tauri as short as it was, and I think really impressed everyone because that car hasn't been great. It's significantly better now than it was earlier in the season, and there's a lot of reasons for that that we won't relitigate here. But Oscar Piastri this year was fantastic, and I had some concerns coming into this championship because I think in a lot of ways, he put a bullseye on himself last year due to his exit from Alpine and of course contractually legally really psychologically emotionally he didn't owe anything to Alpine and I think he got really great business advice and that business advice was that McLaren was a better place to be and that they're going to be able to nurture your development and give you a better package to work with and of course while it didn't look that way at the beginning of the season and I still remember watching that McLaren car reveal and Zach, Zach Brown was just, I don't want to say he was making excuses, but as a good CEO does, he was tempering expectations of the industry, of the analysts, of the market saying, look, this car isn't where it needs to be. And it's not necessarily where it's going to be come the mid, the back half of the season. And if you flash back to Bahrain, that package looked terrible. And of course, it had a good power unit. That Mercedes power unit produces a good amount of horsepower and it's reasonably reliable. But seemingly everything about that car was 
broken, which was a horror show given the fact that you had an entire year of data in this new period of regulations to have built on and to inform your decisions, and you still come out with such a bad car. And I don't think that anyone's ever going to acknowledge exactly what went wrong at that team in late 22 and in the winter of 22-23, but ultimately they deserve all the credit in the world for turning around their fortunes, and they did it with a couple of extremely strong drivers that put in extremely strong drives, but that package seemed to come together in a really effective way in the back half of this season, and I don't think they're producing the top-line speed that they would necessarily want. But this car is extremely sticky in corners and can carry a lot of speed into places where it couldn't earlier in the season. And with that, they're also able to break much deeper into those corners, which gives them, especially on circuits like Las Vegas, it gives them the opportunity to compete for position and look for opportunities to overtake. And I think we have every reason to be incredibly excited about that team in 2024. And the other thing that we learned coming into this weekend as well, and this was something that was up in the air a little bit, and I've I've talked about and, and I've criticized customer teams in the past, because when you're a customer team, you're buying your power unit from somebody else and the development of your car is secondary, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth in the list of priorities and considerations of the team from whom you're buying that power unit. But I was always a little bit uncomfortable with McLaren being so tied to Mercedes. And I don't think that Zach Brown and some of the leadership in Woking were necessarily content with that partnership either. And I'm not suggesting for a second that it isn't a good partnership and that Mercedes hasn't been professional about it. But sometimes it's hard to pair your wagon to a power unit being provided by somebody that you might expect to be a chief competitor in the present or in the very near future. But ultimately, this marriage has turned out to be incredibly equitable for both sides. And a couple of days ago, leading into the Grand Prix weekend, we learned that Zach Brown and Total Wolf have signed an agreement that Mercedes will continue to supply the Woking-based McLaren team with power units into the indefinite future. And maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of McLaren's greatest successes in modern history, if you flash back to 07, 08, were when that team was being supplied with a Mercedes power unit. Of course, 07, 08, very different. They were the only team being supplied, and it was effectively a Mercedes works team, but obviously it's working for that team. It's also probably beneficial to Mercedes as well, because even if our factory, our works team, isn't necessarily winning consistently and to be fair they didn't win a single Grand Prix this year which ugh, it's a shame and, and pretty remarkable given where this team was the past couple of years but it's beneficial to them that from a marketing perspective and from an optics perspective there is another team that is being successful with your power unit and could continue to be successful with that power unit for the I would say the extended future and we also know that Aston Martin, who is also powered by Mercedes, is going to be exiting that relationship at the end of 25. So Mercedes is probably looking to secure relationships with other teams to make sure that they have a supply of teams that are willing to sign up for their power unit. But 
All of that to say McLaren Mercedes P4 in the championship on 302 points. If somebody had said to me in April or May or even the beginning of June that there was the most remote possibility that McLaren Mercedes were going to finish P4 in the championship, I, I probably would have giggled. I would have snorted. A bubble of snot would have come out of my nose. But I'll be quite honest, like I just I wouldn't have seen that as something that would have been feasible. Now when we get down to P5 in the championship, this was also decided this weekend. It was probably not as wide open as P2, but there was a possibility that Aston Martin could have retaken P4 from McLaren. And Aston Martin, another Mercedes-powered team, seemed just unbelievably invincible. That as much, I think, as we were all shocked and dismayed by McLaren's poor start to the season, I think we were all equally as elated with the start that Aston Martin had, particularly with Fernando Alonso behind the wheel. That this was a team, I, I think if I recall, had scored five podiums in their first six races. I think they had six podiums in their first eight races. Fernando Alonso had scored two P2 finishes from a race classification perspective, and they were very solidly in P2 in the championship. Now, I think even I think even the most optimistic Aston Martin fan back in May when we were in Monaco and Spain and Miami or Canada in early June, I don't think anyone anticipated that they necessarily would have been able to hold on to P2, in part because, unfortunately, Fernando's teammate, Lance Stroll, was struggling so badly. But this was a team that got off to an absolutely torrid start, and it got away from them in the middle of the season for a host of reasons that I won't necessarily kind of relitigate now. But we also learned during the season as well that the Aston Martin Aramco Mercedes team is going to exit that partnership with Mercedes come the end of 25, and they will become, for all intents and purposes, the Honda Works team. That Honda is, in fact, going to stay in the championship, which was something that wasn't clear at the beginning of the 2023 calendar. So that's a win for Formula One, but Honda is going to partner with Aston Martin. So Aston Martin, obviously, a reasonably... A reasonably good year, I think, to finish P5, but I think based on where they were at the beginning of the season, it's probably a disappointment. Although that said, I think some of their results as the season wound down probably helped to reassure the leadership and the drivers, particularly Fernando Alonso, that this car, this development trajectory hasn't completely gotten away from them. Uh, I think it's probably also worth mentioning as well that from a from a driver's championship perspective this year, Fernando Alonso finished P4, his best finish since 2013, which is remarkable that he's gone 10 years without finishing P4 or better in the championship. He finished on 206 points, just, by the way, just 28 points behind Lewis Hamilton that he very well could have finished P3 in this championship. And while we might be disappointed that Aston Martin finished P5, that that P5 finish was really on the back of Fernando Alonso's efforts. And I think sometimes we talk about the fact that, you know, these older drivers, you know, they've competed in hundreds of Grand Prix, 300 plus Grand Prix, and they put in tens of thousands of miles on the track and possibly hundreds of thousands of miles in the sim and thousands of hours at the gym. And are they really capable at 37, 38, 39, 40 years old? Are they really capable of winning a Formula One World Drivers Championship? And I, I have to think that if Fernando Alonso was in an RB19 this year, 
that this would have been an absolute cracker of a championship. And I have every reason to think that it would have gone down to the wire in Yas Marina. So that's, again, one of the reasons that I'm excited for next year, that if Aston Martin can get this package back underneath them, you know, maybe there's going to be some degree of excitement there. And of course, finishing P6, we knew this already, Alpine Renault, 120 points, followed by Williams, Mercedes, P7, a relatively strong finish for them, given what we've seen really since 2017, 2018. Alpha Tauri finished P8 on 25 points. There's every reason to think that that team's going to be hyper competitive relative to P8 next year. P9, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari. That is a unique proposition because, of course, the Alfa Romeo branding will be dropped next year. We're not totally clear what the branding will be other than the fact, of course, it will not be branded Audi because Audi will not launch their livery and their branding until 2026 or 2026. And of course, I don't think you would ever want to live in a world and Audi certainly wouldn't ever want to live in a world where Audi branded car is powered by a Ferrari supplied power unit. And then finally finishing P10 on 12 points, the ultra dismal, disappointing Haas Ferrari team that should really really be relegated from Formula One in its entirety. Welcome back to the podcast that's always up to speed with Formula One. Uh, if you're an astute listener, and you probably are, you're probably wondering why we're not getting into the specifics and the granular details of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. But ultimately, I, I think what we saw today is a microcosm of the championship in, in a nutshell. Max Verstappen qualifies extremely well. He gets clean air at the start, and he runs away with the race victory. I think we saw Sergio Perez, his teammate, qualifying P9, get stuck, get stuck in the midfield and has to go wheel to wheel with some other cars to make up those five places to get to P4. Of course, he has wheel-to-wheel contact with Lando Norris, and thank goodness it was wheel-to-wheel because if it wasn't, there could have been some damage to either his or Lando Norris's car or both of them, and it could ultimately have compromised their races. He does get a five-second penalty from the stewards, although it felt like that took a little while to come. Uh, George Russell managed to finish P3. Of course, that is not without Charles Leclerc, the Ferrari-based driver, trying to back up the field a little bit and try to create circumstances that might allow Ferrari to steal away that that P2 in, in the championship. But ultimately, it was a relatively uneventful race. There wasn't a ton going on from a, an on-track perspective. And I think at the same time, it was a little bit anticlimactic just because, you know, the championship's been over for four or five races. And obviously, we and other creators are still always looking for things that are exciting and things to talk about. But from a Grand Prix perspective, this one was fine. And, and maybe it was a little bit disappointing only because it came on the heels of Las Vegas, which I think ultimately turned out to be exceptional in ways that maybe we weren't expecting. Even a day or two into that race weekend, I think a lot of us were looking for reasons to write up a pretty negative review of that race weekend and that race. And ultimately, it turned out to be pretty exceptional. And there was a ton of overtaking. In fact, there was more overtaking at that Grand Prix than there was in any other dry race since 2016. So obviously, I think there was a lot of energy and, and excitement coming out of that race. And of course, Yas Marina has been improved over the years. We saw it reprofile. We saw it tweaked in 2021 to encourage and to, to create a better racing 
environment, but this just wasn't that Grand Prix, unfortunately, and there wasn't really a ton on the line besides P2 and P4 in the championship. Everything else was sewn up. We knew that Lewis wasn't going to be able to steal away P2 from from Sergio Perez because the math just wasn't going to work. Now, you know what? It is 35 minutes into the podcast. Daly's going to be back in a couple of days, and I'm sure we've got some other things to talk about from a Yoss review perspective. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the Fantasy Championship. So obviously, thank you so much to Tease and the entire team at the Netherlands-based racing exclusive memorabilia business, memorabilia digital online store. We were furnished with an unbelievable gift that is actually going to be in the post in the next couple of days but we were furnished with a one half scale signed 2022 Max Verstappen championship replica helmet that is signed with a certificate of authenticity and of course everyone's been tuning in every week because they wanted to know how the championship was going to turn out and the championship has been decided I'm so excited to be able to say that but big shout out to Michael Cronje 16 he finishes first in the championship on 6770 points ultimately turned out to be a bit of a blowout he manages to finish and I'm doing the math here in my head but he finished 37 points ahead of the P2 finisher which I think is the biggest delta that we had all year between P1 and P2 in the championship so huge shout out to Michael he and I chatted a little bit earlier today once the final championship standings have been uploaded on the F1 fantasy site Unfortunately for me, uh, I was hoping that it was somebody that lived nearby or was relatively close geographically speaking. Michael is based in South Africa, but we made a commitment that we would ship this prize to whoever won it, wherever they are in the world. And in a way, it's kind of exciting that he's based in Australia because it just speaks to how broad and international our audience is. So with that as well, thank you to everybody that has joined us on this journey that was the 2023 Formula One Championship. We still have have a month left from a calendar perspective in 2023. We still have some cool stuff coming up. So don't forget that this coming week or this week, actually, we are going to be dropping our 500th episode special. Now, what's really cool about this is it's actually going to be a two-parter and we have six, seven, eight, nine guests that are lined up that are going to be joining us over the course of those two episodes to kind of rehash their experience with the show, uh, talk about their personal careers and their personal journeys with Formula One. We're incredibly excited to share that with everybody. If you don't know as well, uh, Mr. Daly and I are going to sit down and record the intro to that show on Wednesday. Hopefully the episode's going to drop late Wednesday night early Thursday morning, or at least part one, and then part two will drop on the weekend. So something for all of you to look forward to. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And there is a very, very cool surprise that you're going to hear on the first part of that show. If you also want to know a little bit of about the history of this show. In fact, of course, Daly's been doing this since the beginning of 16. I've been doing this with him since 20, I guess 20, the, the really bad COVID year. If you want to learn a little bit about the origins of the show, the show's origin stories and how Daly and I hooked up originally and how we came to do the show, uh, that's a good opportunity for you to turn in and learn all of those juicy details. So with that, you know what, like I said, not going to get super granular. I'm not going to get super technical recapping this race. I think it was just more important to look back and reflect on the championship itself. Obviously, big shout out to Red Bull, the entire Milton Keynes team, to Max Verstappen, to Honda, to everyone at that factory in Tokyo. And once again, thank you to every one of you that have tuned in and thousands of you do every episode, which never, 
ever stop amazing me. So again, we've got the 500th episode special coming up. We're going to do a little something with the Braun documentary that's available now on Hulu and Disney Plus, depending on the territory in which you live. But we're definitely going to have some fun stuff through the back of the year. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the 2023 championship. Here's to 2024, because I'll say this right now, Sunday, November 26th at 7.57 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I think 2024 is going to be a great year. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, and my song's gon' break through like a running back.